Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 21st, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present on the Gospel of John, Part 45, which is titled, Gods and Emperors. Actually, the title alludes to the historical understanding to which is, I believe, required to understand the charges which the Jews had made against Christ before Pilate as a last resort, sort of. In our last presentation of this 18th chapter of the Gospel of John, we are in the last few verses of that chapter, we attempted to answer the question which was posed by Pontius Pilate, where he had asked, what is truth? With the assertion that real truth is what is relevant or relative to the will of God. I don't know how I wrote relevant there, but I meant to write relative. I'm sorry. So Pilate did not answer. Pilate did not receive an answer to his question. He did not. Christ, when Pilate asked what is truth, Christ just simply didn't answer him. As we have also frequently explained throughout this commentary, Yahweh God endows men with wisdom and knowledge on a need-to-know basis, even his own apostles. So Pilate did not really need to know the truth since it was written in the prophets that the Christ had to die. As Christ had also frequently told his own disciples, and perhaps if Pilate had learned the truth in his conversation with Christ, the will of God may have been hindered. Therefore, it must also have been the will of God that Pilate did not find the truth, that Christ did not explain anything to him. There are apocryphal tales which indicate that Pilate had later learned the truth concerning Christ and regretted his actions, but I won't repeat any of those. Another lie is the description of the fate of Pilate as it is recounted in the so-called lost chapter of Acts. The lost chapter of Acts is a forgery, which represents itself to be the 29th chapter of Luke's second book. There are identity Christians who promote that work as truth when it is actually an absolute fraud. As we already explained here, Pilate had remained stationed in his office in Judea until 36 AD, or perhaps as late as 37 AD, depending on how the years are reckoned and the, and the calendar was reckoned, when he was relieved after complaints of how he had handled a sedition in Syria, and he then returned to Rome. From that point, he disappears from the historical record, and later Christians who reported his having committed suicide, such as 
Eusebius of Caesarea, lacked any substantiation to establish the claim as fact. Now we shall commence with our commentary on these last few verses of John chapter 18 from precisely where we had left off, in the middle of verse 38, where Pilate is recorded as having asked, what is truth? And at that point, he left off questioning Christ in the praetorium and went back out to inquire of the Judeans. And saying this, he again went out to the Judeans and says to them, I find not any guilt in him, but it is a custom with you that I shall release one of one for you, one prisoner for you on the Passover. Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Judeans? Since Christ himself had admitted no wrongdoing, Pilate had not yet heard testimony bearing any evidence for the accusations for which the Judeans sought to have him executed, and therefore he could not judge him guilty. So it seems that Pilate was mocking the Judeans themselves, and not Christ, where he had asked whether he should release for you the king of the Judeans. But if Pilate understood this to be the charge, we are not told by John how Pilate had understood it. By the manner in which John recorded the initial inquiry which Pilate had made of Christ, he had not yet heard the charge, at least in the presence of Christ. In the opening verses of Luke chapter 23, we read, And rising, the whole multitude of them brought him before Pilate. Then they began accusing him, saying, We have found him perverting our nation and preventing giving tribute tax to Caesar and saying of himself to be the anointed king. So as they brought Christ to Pilate, various Judeans must have been shouting out charges at him. But that does not necessarily mean that all these things all happened at once. The Gospel of Mark accords with what we may read in Matthew chapter 27, where it says, Then Yahshua stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? And Yahshua said to him, You say. So it's like Matthew and Mark are missing a good deal of the, nar of the narrative which John provides here. And Luke's perspective is somewhat different than Matthew and Mark's, but that's fine. That's actually useful. In verse 12 of Matthew chapter 27, and to that which had been brought as an accusation against him by the high priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate says to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not reply to him with even one word, so for the governor to wonder exceedingly. So while it is apparent that all of this happened publicly, and here, here in John, Pilate had already questioned Christ privately, it seems to corroborate what Christ had answered privately as it is recorded in John. 
When Pilate asked Christ publicly whether he was the king of the Judeans, Christ only answered, you say, not denying the charge, but attributing the sentiment to Pilate himself. However, where it is recorded in Matthew that Pilate had asked Christ if he heard the many things the Judeans were testifying against him, we may understand that the crowd of Judeans must have been yelling out the charges against Christ as Pilate was endeavoring to ascertain the truth of the matter. And that in turn corroborates the account as it was given in Luke. As a digression, it is just before this point that Matthew had recorded the fate of Judas Iscariot, where he had hanged himself. Then it is evident that the public questioning of Christ, which is recorded in the other three Gospels, which we have already discussed here, had happened at this point as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 27, which we have just discussed here, I should say. In Mark's rather concise account of these events, found in chapter 15 of his gospel, we read, And Pilate questioned him, Are you king of the Judeans? Then responding to him, he says, You say, And the high priest accused him of many things. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Would you not answer anything? Look at how many things they accuse you of. But Yahshua did not yet answer anything, consequently for Pilate to wonder. This agrees also with what is found in that corresponding passage in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. Standing before Pilate in the presence of the Judeans, Yahshua hardly answered any of Pilate's questions. He made no rebuttal of the charges, and his silence fulfilled the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now, the Judeans answered Pilate in a manner which he probably would never have expected. Then they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. At this point, the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark record of Pilate, as it is in Mark chapter 15. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. That idea is expressed by John in his record of the plot which they had against Christ in John chapter 12, where it says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. And they said, What do we do? For this man does many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. They were envious. Then there is another passage in Matthew, which is not found in any of the other Gospels, in chapter 27, where it is speaking of Pilate, and we read, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered 
many things this day in a dream because of him. Some commentators think that this was an interpolation, but there is no manuscript evidence which supports that contention. Rather, a statement here in John chapter 19 seems to corroborate it indirectly, and we will explain that later. Here John stated rather concisely that Barabbas was a robber, but there is much more to the account of Barabbas than that, even though it's not described in Josephus, not mentioning Barabbas' name anyway. In Matthew, we read, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Luke called Barabbas a murderer in Acts chapter 3. But in chapter 23 of his gospel, he explained that for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder, he was cast into prison. Mark's otherwise concise account informs us more fully. And there was one named Barabbas who lay bound with them that had made an insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. So Barabbas was evidently the leader of a sedition and was somewhat infamous, and the apostles certainly did not hold him in any esteem or in high esteem. However, the Judeans would rather have seen a man who led a violent sedition go free, a man who was a threat to the civil authority than to see Christ freed, a man who was peaceful, but who was a threat to their own perceived religious authority. But here we must have another digression to explain a problem which is peculiar to Christian identity. Long ago, Wesley Swift either repeated, that's possible, or he contrived, which is more probable, a fabulous tale about this Barabbas. So I wrote the following in my commentary on Luke chapter 3, chapter 23, given here in December of 2012. Because I have already repeated some of the things which I said there in the context of the preceding verses here, I will cite it as I did in a more recent critique of Wesley Swift, which I gave here in May of 2016. There was a fascinating story told by Wesley Swift in relation to this Barabbas, which must be addressed here. The story is found under the title, The Blue Tunic Army of Christ, and it is found in most of the archives of Swift's papers including the one at Christagenia. I do not know if Swift originated the story or not. However, I do know this. There is absolute a biblical or historical evidence in support of that story. In this story, Swift claims that Barabbas was the leader of an organized resistance movement, which had the blessings of Christ and which served to protect him, sort of like the National Socialist brown shirts of the 1920s. There is no reason to doubt the gospel accounts, and there is no indication 
than, Bar than that Barabbas was anything more than a common robber involved in sedition and murder, none of which Christ had anything to do with. Wesley Swift pointed out many good things concerning Scripture, and for that reason his work is worth preserving. However, his many innovations, and additionally his tendency towards syncretism, allow for the propagation of a lot of error if his work is not treated with care. It has to be discerned carefully because sometimes Wesley Swift was just full of it. Wesley Swift created more than one lie in his Blue Tunic Army of Christ sermon, and we must eradicate those lies from our Christian identity profession if we are ever going to legitimately claim to stand for the truth. As Paul of Tarsus wrote in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Romans, for if the truth of God has abounded more through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? While what is truth is relative to the will of God, Yahweh our God does not need the help of our lies. So in a rhetorical question, Paul professed that if we do lie, we are sinners even if we think the lie is for the good of God. Returning to this morning upon which Christ is brought before Pilate, there is another account in Luke, which is not recorded in John or the other Gospels, and which is difficult to place into the chronology of the narrative as it is recorded here in John. But that does not mean that it didn't happen. Rather, it may only mean that perhaps John did not think it necessary or important enough to include. So in Luke chapter 23, after it is recorded that the Judeans were shouting out charges of sedition, we read, Then Pilate, to the chief priests and to the people, said, I find no fault in this man. And they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, or Judea, I'm reading the King James Version, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, meaning for a long time, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, sent him at night and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Pilate would send Christ to Herod. But Herod did not have the authority to execute a capital offense. As it is recorded in Luke chapter 3, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. 
This Herod is Herod Antipas. And his brother Herod Philip was also a tetrarch, which means leader of a fourth part. The title was used from the time that the kingdom of Judea was divided into four parts among several of the sons of the first Herod. That happened because the heir of the first Herod, his son Archelaus, was quite wicked and was removed from the kingdom by the Romans after only a few years, and perhaps eight years, and Judea was reduced to the status of a province. Herod Antipas is the same Herod who was rebuked by John the Baptist for taking his brother Philip's wife as his own. While Herod Antipas and Herod Philip were both sons of the first Herod, another, older son named Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. She became the wife of each of these others, so that she was married to two of her own uncles. She was the wife of Herod Antipas, who was recorded as having demanded the head of John the Baptist, which is found in Mark chapter 6. With this, we shall commence with John chapter 19. So then, Pilatus, or I've been saying Pilate throughout this commentary, but it's Pilatus after the Greek spelling in the Christogenia New Testament. So then Pilate took and whipped Yahshua. And the soldiers, having braided a crown out of thorns, placed it upon his head. And with a purple cloth, they cloaked him. And they came to him and said, Hail, king of the Judeans, and had given him slaps on the face. The word rapisma is a stroke or a blow with a rod or a blow with a hand. And the word was commonly used to describe a slap on the face. So we translated it in that manner. The final Greek clause may have been left as had given him slaps. Here it might be evident that Christ was indeed sent to Herod and returned either at or before this point in John's narrative, as Luke explains that as the source of what he had called a gorgeous robe, as it is in the King James Version. That may certainly be this same purple cloth, which is mentioned here by John, as we can tell from verse 4. Pilate had these things done to Yahshua within the Prohitorium, so the Judeans did not witness them unless the courtyard was visible and they could see it from a distance. If Herod were in Jerusalem at this time, as it is reported by Luke, then Herod may well have been in the Prohitorium himself when Pilate brought him into the Prohitorium. And in that manner, the narrative comes together quite well with that understanding. Here once again, as it was at the home of the high priest much earlier in the morning, we see the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. In this respect, we may also read from Isaiah chapter 50, from verse 5. Yahweh God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Likewise, Christ had to drink the cup which he was given. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for Yahweh God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, Yahweh God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moths shall eat them up. Once the children of God realize eternal life, the meaning of those last words concerning his enemies, where it says, they all shall wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up, shall indeed be fully understood. Proceeding with verse 4 of John chapter 19. And Pilate went outside again and says to them, Behold, I bring him outside to you, that you may know that I find not any guilt in him. Then Yahshua came outside, wearing the crown of thorn and the purple cloth. And he says to them, Behold the man. For clothing, purple was, of course, the color of royalty. Generally, only kings and certain priests were permitted to wear it in designated ways. The use of other types and colors of clothing were also often regulated by Roman law, especially the toga, and for women, the stola. Here Pilate once again attested that he could not find a just cause for which to condemn Christ, in spite of the shouting accusations of the Judeans. So evidently, by his having scourged and mocked Christ, he had hoped to placate the Judeans who wanted him killed. However, making such an exhibition, he also seems to have been mocking the Judeans. And not yet taking their charges seriously, he made light of them instead, which may have even agitated them further. So John records the reaction of the Judeans. Therefore, when the high priests and the deputy saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! According to Luke, the first charges that the Judeans had shouted out against Christ, as he wrote in chapter 23 of his gospel, indicated that he was a usurper and a tax protester, where they said, We have found him perverting our nation and preventing giving tribute tax to Caesar and saying of himself to be the anointed king. Of course, these charges were not true, and Pilate must have known that there was no evidence in support of them 
because there were no signs of any such sedition among his followers. But not yet having found anything for which Christ could be justly executed, Pilate is apparently exasperated and offers to grant them their wishes if they would fulfill the act themselves, since he wants no part in it. Where John wrote that Pilatus says to them, you take and crucify him, for I do not find any guilt in him. Here we must digress once again. Having undue influence and control of the modern print and electronic media, the modern Jews purposely and persistently misrepresent the events surrounding the death of Christ in all of the media accounts and literary products by which they endeavor to convince the gullible that Jesus was a Jew and that Jesus was really killed by the Romans, unjustly portraying Pilate as the true culprit. Here in the accounts of John, it is clear that Jesus was anything but a Jew and that he stood in steadfast opposition to that anti-Christian element in Judea, which later retained their identity as Jews, those who remained Jews after the destruction of Judea, whom Christ had also denounced as not having a common origin or identity with himself and his people. Here in John's Gospel, it is also quite evident that these ancient Jews, those who conspired against Christ, were also attempting to get Pilate to take responsibility for the act, while at the same time pressuring him politically so that he ultimately had little choice but to comply with their wishes. So the ancient Jews tried to get Pilate to take responsibility for the act, and the modern Jews are still trying to put it on Pilate, but Pilate wouldn't have anything to do with it until he was forced. Therefore, so that they could further compel Pilate, the Jews made another charge, which would have been seen as an offense to Rome since it concerned a title which was held exclusively by the emperor. The Judeans replied to him, We had a law, and according to the law, he is liable to die because he has made himself a son of God. There is a law against blasphemy, which is found in Leviticus chapter 24, where it says, And he that blasphemes in the name of Yahweh, he shall be surely put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. But there is no law against Ezri, any, there, there is no law against any Israelite, considering himself to be a son or a daughter of God. Rather, it is what the scriptures themselves actually teach. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, where it says, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. 
On many occasions in the prophets and the Psalms, the children of Israel are described explicitly as children of God. At least some of the adversaries of Christ had already publicly claimed for themselves to have God for a father. In John 8, 41, where they said, we be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Mentioning fornication in company with fatherhood, they were also claiming an actual, literal descent from God. So with this, it should be evident that the Judeans were not making this accusation of blasphemy against Christ in relation to the Hebrew scriptures. But they were making it in relation to Roman law. The significant difference first becomes evident in John chapter 10, where we read, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. And if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God? As another digression, this is an evening of digressions, the wisdom of Solomon is counted as an apocryphal book, and academics usually will not assign a date to it older than the first century B.C., they would probably not admit it was that old, except that fragments of it were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, so they have not much choice. However, the book was a part of the traditional Septuagint, and many early Christians considered it to be a part of the canon. For my part, I do believe it is a part of the canon, and that it belongs in our Bibles, right between the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, because I am also persuaded that it was indeed written by Solomon. In chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, there is a lengthy passage which is prophetic of the enemies of Christ and is certainly also, for that reason, to be reckoned as a messianic prophecy. So I will read with a dry throat. I will read from verse 10. Let us oppress. Now, when I read this, you should think of the attitude which Christ projects onto his enemies, the attitude by which Christ portrays his enemies, the accusation that Christ makes against his enemies. Matthew chapter 23 let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the ancient gray hairs of the aged. Let our strength be the law of justice, for that which is feeble is found to be nothing of worth, <clears throat> and that 
passage, that verse right there, verse 11, expresses the pagan concept that might makes right, which is also the basis for emperors and kings who considered themselves to be gods. That's where it all begins, with this idea that might makes right, that man can make his own law just because he's powerful enough to lord over other men. Therefore, let us lie in wait for the righteous, because he is not for our turn, and he is clean contrary to our doings. He upbraids us with our offending the law, meaning the law of God, and objects to our infamy, the transgressings of our education, the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. He professes to have the knowledge of God, and he calls himself the child of the Lord, the Son of God. He was made to reprove our thoughts. He was made to reprove our thoughts. He is grievous unto us even to behold, for his life is not like other men's. His ways are of another fashion. We are esteemed of him as counterfeits. Christ told his enemies that they were fakes, that they weren't real children of Israel. They weren't real children of God. We are esteemed of him as counterfeits. He abstains. He abstains from our ways as from filthiness. He pronounces the end of the just to be blessed and makes his boast that God is his father. Let us see if his words be true. And let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. And they did. They made that test. They killed him, and he was resurrected. For if, he, for if the just man be the son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Let us examine him with despitefulness and torture, that we may know his meekness and prove his patience. Let us condemn him with a shameful death. He that hangs on a tree is cursed, for by his own saying he shall be respected. Such things did they imagine and were deceived. For their own wickedness has blinded them. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not. Neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. The enemy, the enemies of Christ had no clue as to anything that the scriptures taught concerning the righteous. Reading this may cause us to recollect many things which Christ had said and how he had spoken to his enemies during the course of his ministry. Then, as it continues, it further evokes things that Christ had said relating to the very purpose of the gospel. For God, and I quote this passage often, especially in this commentary on John, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. And then the first verse in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3. But the souls 
of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. John chapter 17. In earlier times, it would not have been an offense to a pagan such as Pilate that someone would call themselves a son of God. According to the ancient classical poets, all of the Greeks and Romans had at one time esteemed themselves to be descended from one or more of their various pagan gods and goddesses. The origins of entire tribes were said to come from the union of various gods with earthly women. This is also reminiscent of Genesis chapter 6, but that's another matter. But in times more recent to Pilate, Julius Caesar himself had claimed the Roman idol Venus as an ancestor and his descent from Aeneas to validate his own right to rule over the Romans. Therefore, and much more significantly within the historical context of the time of Christ, both Julius and then Augustus Caesar had been deified and shortly thereafter, even living emperors started to be worshipped as gods. After his assassination, Julius Caesar was formally deified, deified, pronounced as a god. He was formally deified in the Roman Senate as the divine Julius. Octavian, later known as Augustus Caesar, was his adopted son and heir. And during his long rule, he was known by the title Divi Filius, which is son of God. It was Caesar's title. While there was a subtle distinction between the word divus, which is technically godlike, and deus, or God, divus was nevertheless translated as God. And the distinction was not understood in the provinces, nor was it maintained by the emperors. The crucifixion took place in the rule of Tiberius, who also had been designated by the title Divi Filius, son of God, and it was maintained by later emperors. Even though living emperors were being worshipped as gods, they did not assume the title of God during their lifetimes, but did use the title Son of God as the heirs of their fathers who were deified. So even Nero had rejected the title Divus in reference to himself while he still lived, as Tacitus had described in the closing sentences of, of Book 15 of his Annals of Rome. But by the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian was being addressed by the title Dominus et Deus, which is Lord and God. Towards the end of his histories, Tacitus ascribed to the emperor Vespasian miracles such as the healing of a man with a withered hand and the opening of the eyes of another man who was blind. These things were written of Vespasian as he was still in Alexandria in Egypt at a time when he had only recently become emperor but had not yet entered Rome. 
I cannot help to think that those things were written to magnify the cult worship of the emperor as God in light of the reports circulating concerning Christ. However, Christ, during the time of his ministry, had never explicitly called himself God, but only the Son of God, which is not blasphemy in the scripture. But the Roman emperors called themselves the Son of God in relation to their fathers, because in that respect, the God they referred to in the title was their father, the former emperor. Like the ancient Egyptian pharaohs, the emperors had believed that once they died, they became gods. Again, in book 15 of his Annals of Imperial Rome, writing of the events of the year 65, 65 AD, Tacitus explained that there was a proposal by the Roman Senate that a temple should be erected as a matter of urgency to the divine Nero. Then he recorded the response. Regardless of any presumed intentions behind the proposition, and he said, but Nero himself vetoed this in case the malevolent twisted it into an omen of his death, for divine honors are paid to emperors only when they are no longer among men. Nero was mad, but he was not quite so mad as Domitian would later prove to be since he did not want to be called God while he still lived. This was about 30 years before Domitian. The emperors, calling themselves sons of God, believed, or son of God, I'm sorry, believed that when they died, they became gods, and the designated heir, whom they would adopt as a son if he was not a natural son, would in turn use the same title. So the Jews condemned Christ for professing for himself to be God according to what the Romans believed, but not according to Scripture, because he used the phrase Son of God to describe himself. So while there was no offense to the God of Scripture, the use of the title would certainly have been a further offense to Caesar. Therefore, it is apparent that this accusation was made by the Judeans for that very reason, so that in the eyes of Pilate, they could magnify the gravity of their charges that Christ had claimed to be king of the Judeans. Pilate, being a Roman and a pagan, having his religion dictated and regulated by the pagan Roman priesthood, the Senate, and the emperor, he would not have interpreted this statement in the same way as the Judeans who uttered it, and the Judeans must have known that, taking advantage of the Roman belief in order to help condemn Christ. So John records Pilate's reaction after hearing that, in reference to Christ, he made himself a son of God. Then, when Pilate heard this word, still more he feared and entered into the praetorium again and says to Yahshua, from where are you? But Yahshua gave him no reply. While there were no reports of any violence 
or acts against Rome, which could be justly attributed to the followers of Christ. And therefore, Pilate was not persuaded by the charges of sedition. Pilate must have known that Christ did indeed have a great number of disciples and followers, because the cohort of soldiers and the Roman tribune who commanded them must have been lent to the Judeans by Pilate himself the night before when they set out to have Christ arrested. <clears throat> Moreover, if Herod Antipas had heard many things in reference to Christ and, and had even hoped to see a miracle from him, we cannot take it for granted that Pilate was ignorant of those same reports which Herod had heard. The Judeans themselves, as it is recorded in John chapter 12, had admitted that the reports were widespread. The explanation made by Matthew is not directly corroborated in the other Gospels, that Pilate's wife had warned him of a dream which he had about Christ. But here, it certainly is corroborated because nothing else could explain why Pilate should have had any fear at all in relation to Christ. But here, upon hearing this charge that Christ had claimed for himself to be a son of God, John writes of Pilate that still more he feared and entered into the praetorium again and says to Yahshua, from where are you? Pilate sought the truth of the matter, but he could not know the truth. So because it continued to elude him, he once again expressed exasperation. And in verse 10, therefore, Pilate says to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Some manuscripts, including the majority text and therefore the King James Version, invert the words release and crucify, but it says the same thing. Here it is evident, once again, that Pilate must have had some reason to fear Christ, and the dream described by his own wife, the extant reports of miracles, the testimony which he heard from Christ himself that my kingdom is not of this world along with all the other things he must have heard, provide the apparent reasons for his fear. Politically, it would have been both safe and easy for Pilate to have complied with the demands of the Judeans. There was no obvious reason for him to resist their demands, but there was a political risk if he continued to refuse. On many occasions, the Judeans had sent embassies to Rome to complain whenever they were dissatisfied with the actions of the proconsuls or other rulers of their province. They sent embassies against Herod pretty consistently. They sent embassies against Herod Archelaus, his son, and the Romans actually deposed Herod Archelaus, and turned the kingdom into a tetrarchy, into a province, and made tetrarchs. 
Pilate would indeed suffer that same fate later when he was relieved and sent to Rome in 36 AD, only a few years after this time. Perhaps it was 37 because the calendar is not that certain. But if Christ were unjustly executed, he would have no advocate to send an embassy to Rome on his behalf. And it is very unlikely with the leaders of the Judeans on his side that would have been that there would have been any political repercussions for Pilate to fear if he just went along with them. In fact, the subsequent history of Pilate in Judea proves that he had suffered no repercussions for the act. So something greater must have caused him to seek a reason not to comply with their demands, even if he did ultimately give in to their demands. He didn't want to. Now, Yahshua's answer may have further compounded Pilate's fears and the predicament which they had created for him. Yahshua replied to him, You do not have any authority over me if it was not given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater fault. Now, instead of compounding Pilate's fear, it seems that this actually should have relieved Pilate of any worries of supernatural reprisal for what he was being compelled to do against his own will. In any event, the lengths which Pilate had gone to in an attempt to avoid executing Christ proves his lack of culpability in the act, that he had no intentions or desires to carry out his execution until he himself was threatened with political reprisal by the Judeans, which we shall see. Ostensibly, where Christ said, he who delivered me to you has the greater fault, he refers not only to Judas Iscariot, but to the high priests and to every other Judean who took part in the conspiracy against him. So we read in Matthew chapter 27, where upon the demands of the people that Christ be executed and Barabbas released, Pilate said to them, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, let him be crucified. Now that verb is actually an imperative verb. And let him be crucified may have worked for the 16th century Englishmen who translated the King James Version. But in the Christogenia New Testament, it's he must be crucified, or it's more of a demand to crucify because the verb is imperative. They all say unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. He was afraid there would be an insurrection. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and 
on our children. So every Judean present accepted eternal responsibility, perpetual responsibility for the murder of the Christ. And those who have not been and who will not be granted his mercy will not escape his wrath. For that reason also did Paul call the true Israelites in Judea vessels of mercy, and they ultimately lost their identity as Judeans. But Paul called the Edomites in Judea vessels of destruction, and they are the ancestors of the Jews of today, who certainly do have the liability for the blood of Christ on themselves and their children. And for that, they will pay the ultimate penalty. Pilate, rather than being put at ease by this statement, had instead continued to seek a way not to have to crucify Christ, which is further proof that the Jews alone were responsible for the crime. Pilate continued to seek a way to spare Christ in spite of the fact that Christ would not assist in his own defense, which also made a defense difficult and impossible for Pilate. From this point, we read in verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Judeans cried out, saying, If you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself a king speaks in opposition to Caesar. Of course, it's an act of sedition to declare oneself a king. But Christ never declared that he was going to be the king of Judea. As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. For that, in consideration of Pilate, we read in the 26th Psalm, I have hated the congregation of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Yahweh. In the political climate of the time, the exclamation that if you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, is actually a political threat. If Pilate had not relented, and especially if a riot had happened in the city, where typically tens of thousands of outsiders were also gathered for the feast, then he himself would have had to answer to Caesar against all of the resulting accusations of the Jews. That would have been a situation he could not have won. Since the life of one man, a man who was not a Roman, was simply not esteemed in contrast to the peace imposed by Roman tyranny. As we had already said, just a few years after this, Pilate handled 
an actual sedition in a manner which displeased the Judeans, and he was relieved of his post and sent to Rome to account for his actions. In our last presentation of this commentary, we cited the account of that which is found in Josephus in book 18 of his Antiquities. Except for the 10 senatorial provinces of the empire, the 10 toes of Daniel, all of the other provinces were considered to be imperial provinces. They were under the control of the emperor exclusively. The governors of these provinces were appointed directly by the emperor, who at this time was Tiberius Caesar. The phrase, friend of Caesar, represented a political designation in Rome, and the emperors gave their friends such appointments as governorships of provinces, which were often very lucrative. As we also explained in our last presentation of this commentary, citing Josephus once more in Antiquities Book 20, Pilate had already held this office in Judea since 26 AD, or about six years up to the time of the event of the crucifixion of Christ. The Judeans here are actually making a veiled threat that if Pilate did not succumb to their wishes, that they could begin to accuse him before the emperor of being a traitor. Nearly 30 years later, another procurator of Judea, Felix, desiring to bestow a favor upon the Jews, as it says in Acts chapter 24, left Paul in bonds when he left office. He evidently did so because he was leaving Judea for reason of the Judeans of Caesarea, who had an accusation against him that he had to answer before Caesar Nero. According to Josephus, in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Felix only escaped punishment because of the influence that his brother, Pallas, had with the emperor. And this was in spite of the fact that he evidently sought to make amends with the Jews by leaving Paul in bonds. A close examination of their history certainly betrays the fact that the Jews as a people had been accustomed to creating political agitation so that they may be favored as a special class, and they have done it all throughout history. In Strabo's Geography, in Book 11, there is a statement concerning the Medes of his own time. There were still some Medes left around in the first century, where he said in reference to them that they got back Simbake from the Armenians when the later became subject to the Romans, and they themselves, the Medes, have attained to friendship with Caesar. Later, in Book 13 of his geography, speaking of Theophanes, a historian of the first century BC, Strabo said, Theophanes was also a statesman, and he became a friend to Pompey the Great, mostly through his very ability, and helped him to succeed in all his achievements. Whence he not only adorned his native land, 
partly through Pompey and partly through himself, but also rendered himself the most illustrious of all the Greeks. Pompey was assassinated during the civil war with Caesar in 48 BC. But continuing with Strabo, he left a son, Marcus Pompey, whom Augustus Caesar once set up as procurator of Asia, and who was now counted among the friends of Tiberius, now counted among the friends of Caesar, the friends of Tiberius, Augustus Caesar's successor. Strabo was writing this when Tiberius was emperor, and therefore we see in these citations that the appellation, friend of Caesar, was a sort of official designation awarded to political friends and allies of the emperor. Likewise, Flavius Josephus also frequently mentioned the status which Herod had enjoyed as a friend of Caesar. And when Herod angered Caesar, as it is recorded in Antiquities Book 16, how Caesar had wrote to Herod sharply. The sum of his letter was this, that whereas of old he had used him as his friend, he should now use him as his subject. So Herod was screwed for a little while until he kissed Caesar's ass enough that he got back into his good graces. And that's exactly what happened. Therefore, it should be clear that Pilate feared political reprisal from denying the Judeans their desire to kill Christ, and that they certainly were threatening political reprisal by exclaiming that if he did not give in to their demands, that he was no friend of Caesar. But once Pilate was forced to concede to their demands, he washed his hands, proclaiming his own innocence, and the Judeans gleefully accepted the guilt, as it is recorded in Matthew. Therefore, Pilate, hearing these words, led Joshua outside and sat upon a step in a place called Stone Paved, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. The word translated as step, Bema or Bama refers to a bench or elevated seat from which judgment was pronounced. While it is a Greek word, there is a Hebrew word, bama, Strong's number 1116, which means a high place. The Greek noun has a corresponding verb, behino, which means to walk or step or mount, but I would certainly make the correlation to the older Hebrew word as its root. I'm fairly convinced of that. In the original Strong's Concordance, the word Gabbatha is said to be derived from a word relating to the Hebrew word Gab, which can refer to a vault or an arch. However, many related words listed right after those definitions can mean elevated, high, or lofty, which are more similar related words. John's statement that the place is in Hebrew Gabbatha once again shows that his gospel account was originally written in Greek. The word lithostrotus, 
is literally paved with stones. Although it is often believed, and is certainly plausible, that the stones here must have formed some sort of mosaic. The overall description seems to portray a decorative plaza outside of the Prahitorium, where judgments were publicly pronounced. And in verse 14 we read, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. The preparation day was the day before the Passover, which began in the evening. The disciples had already had their own Passover meal. And later in this chapter, John again refers to this day as the day of the Jews' preparation, further indicating that perhaps the temple was using a different calendar. That would explain several anomalies in the chronology of events in the New Testament. The Judeans had brought Christ to Pilate at daybreak, which is the meaning of the word proya that appears in John chapter 18, verse 28. The markets opened at the third hour, which roughly corresponds with 9 a.m. Now it is around 12 p.m. or noon, being the sixth hour. According to charts provided at the website timeanddate.com, on April 2nd of this year, 2020, Sunrise in Jerusalem is at 6.26 a.m. According to the modern conventional clocks, if they are set for the appropriate time zone. So the events of this day have already consumed about six hours. And with that, we may determine just how concisely the Gospels were written. Because you don't get that, imp that impression of six hours from these last 20 verses of John's gospel. <laughs> I don't anyway. And he says to the Judeans, behold, your king. And it once again seems that Pilate was taunting the Judeans rather than Christ. He will continue to do that as the day proceeds. Now they convict themselves once again, where they respond. Then they cried out, kill, kill, crucify him. Pilate says to them, shall I crucify your king? The high priests replied, we have no king except Caesar. Professing to have no king but Caesar, who was a profane man who considered himself to be the son of God. He had that as an official title. Who used as an official title the label D.V. Filius, which is son of God in Latin, and which was made in reference to another man, his dead father, the Judeans proved themselves to be idolaters and, once again, hypocrites. But as the wisdom of Solomon also attributed words to them which said, let our strength be the law of justice, it is clear that they love the righteousness of men rather than the righteousness which is of God. For them, truth, as we've also discussed here in our last presentation, 
For them, truth is only what is politically expedient rather than what is relative to the word of God. They continue with that attitude to this very day, often even considering themselves to be gods. In like manner, they also continue to manufacture for themselves their own truth. So to them, the Christ for whom they exhibit vile hatred, they also lay claim to as one of their own. While at the same time, they blame Christians for a Holocaust that never happened. But the day is coming when Jesus Christ shall indeed give them a Holocaust. Tomorrow night, we shall continue our criticism of Charles Weissman's book and explain what he could not, where he asked the question, what about the seed line doctrine? Yahweh willing, we shall continue our commentary on the Gospel of John next Friday. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of every Jew. And good night.